Man, what a privilege to open God's Word after that. To have our hearts drawn in joy and in reflection to our own sin and to our great Savior. And then ultimately, where that truth comes around even today is in how we treat one another. Because we can stand and sing about a Savior who gave all for us. And in our own selfish hearts, then we can really be restrictive on how we want to treat and give to others. And so if you'll take your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we go from one unbelievable scene, the scene in Revelation that we began the service with and the the scene of the cross in the empty tomb that we sang about to another unbelievable scene. And when I talked with Danny and he talked about the one another this morning, I kind of chuckled. It was wait for one another. Now some of you are good at waiting and some of you are abundantly flexible and this guy is not. And so God in his goodness was like, that's a text you need. But as I dug into it, I felt its weight. And I hope that we will all feel its weight this morning. Not to drive us to guilt and despair, but to drive us to Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Wait for one another. The text starts like this in verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. This is page 958 in that pew Bible in front of you. If you'd like to use one of those, as always, take it home if you don't have one. We would be happy for you to have it. Um, But page 958. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Since you come together, you Christians gather Not for the better, but for the worse. And then if you skip down to verses 33 and 34, the the passage ends a bit ominously. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't plan to come to gather today to be under God's discipline. And and I didn't come to gather with you today for things to be worse and not better. That's not normally why we come to gather together. But this text warns us that that is possible. Can we pray together and then let God's word dig into our hearts? Oh God, there is none like you. There is none like Jesus. We marveled this morning at his cross, his sacrifice. Nobody took his life, he laid it down. And he laid it down for us, for the sins of the world. He who knew no sin became sin for us. 
And so while we marvel at that, as we open your word this morning, may we examine ourselves and the condition of our hearts and the way that we live towards one another as we gather. And by your grace, would you make it to look like Jesus when he gathered and would you make it to look like Jesus when he gave not so often as it is something that we are trying to consume for ourselves. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. How many of you have ever experienced something good gone horribly bad? A few years ago, a friend of mine got tickets to, v- to see our favorite soccer team. So uh, a lot of people in the world soccer community can't stand Manchester United, but they're my favorite club team. And so they were coming to Denver, and we got tickets to go. In fact, the way it worked was my friend got tickets to go. And he got two tickets from his wife for his birthday, and he invited me to go with him. And we lived about three and a half hours from the stadium. And so we got in the car about five or five and a half hours before the game to get down nice and early to see the game. And I had been awaiting this day and excited about this day, and so was he, And as we drove from Steamboat Springs, where we lived at the time, down towards Denver, I had mapped out the route. And the route was supposed to take us to the east side of Denver to uh, the, the soccer stadium that the Colorado Rapids play at, which is right on the east side of Denver. And so we were coming along, driving through the city, all excited for the game, and we hit a little bit of traffic. But I was like, that's not a big deal. We're early. We planned to be early. We got all the way through the city, And to the other side, we were an hour and a half before the game, which is just, I was like, perfect. And we pull into the stadium where the Colorado Rapids play into the parking lot, and the parking lot is empty. And all of a sudden, I get the same feeling that we all get when things that are supposed to be good go bad. You get that pit in your stomach. Becomes very uncomfortable very fast. And so I pull my phone out and I look up the game and it's actually back across town at Sports Authority Field where the Broncos play. And now instead of being an hour and a half early, we're in trouble. And as we go to get back across town, town is busy and packed and fans are going into the game and my watch is ticking down to the game time. And as we sit in traffic and mutter and fume and get sicker and sicker, game time hits, and we're still in traffic. And we finally find parking, we're about a half mile from the stadium, and the game is 20 minutes over, and now we're rushing to get to the stadium. And to make matters worse, the friend that I'm with, who gifted me the ticket, who I was the driver and got the directions, actually has a very real physical handicap that makes it hard for him to walk. And so his legs are bowed and it's painful for him to walk and so we're late and we're sweating and he's walking and it hurts and we finally get into the stadium just as the entire crowd rushes out for halftime. And we get to our seats And everything inside of me wants to enjoy the second half of that game. 
but I'm sick. Because something that was supposed to be good ended up very disappointing. Have you been there? How many of you have experienced a date night fight? (laughs) Husband, you came home from work late. Your wife had dinner prepared. She burned it. It got cold. Now this special night, the kids are at a babysitter and you wish they weren't. You wish they were just home and you could just hit the reset button and start over. Or you've experienced a vacation where you actually ended up um, more exhausted when you came home than when you left and the car broke down halfway on the trip and then you had a bill and then and you were like, this is supposed to be restful? Or you've been at one of those weddings where somebody who's asked to speak decides that they're a stand-up comedian. They want to tell you a terrible story from the groom or bride's past and in your stomach you just you start to get sick. Why? Because it's possible that things that are intended to be good can go bad. And when we come to 1 Corinthians 11, we expect that when we gather as Christians, it will be a positive experience, that it will be good for us, for our family, for others. And though we would never say it, maybe it'd even be good for God. I mean, this will make his day in some way. We especially think this about times we gather together in special ways, like celebrating communion. Man, it's a Sunday, we're gonna, we're gonna sing songs about Christ's death and resurrection and we're gonna take some time to really, as a church family, celebrate that. And this text is about Christian gatherings. In verse 17, it says, since you come together. In verse 18, when you come together. Verse 20, when you come together. Verse 33, when you come together. And it's about what sometimes happens when Christians gather when they come together to worship and even to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And God wants to seriously and strongly remind us from his word this morning that not all Christian gatherings are good. We can gather in such a way that God's church is disgraced, his people are shamed, and we come under his chastening discipline. That's why verse 34 ends with, unless you come together for judgment. So we want to ask the question this morning, how do we gather as followers of Jesus in a way that is better and not worse? In a way that can be praised, not judged. And so we see first in this text a sickening gathering of the church. And I could use the word shameful or shocking, but I think that pit in our stomach feeling is something we can all relate to. Let's begin in verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. You may think that's why you're coming together, but you're not. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. 
Now, in order for us to fully grasp this scene, we need to understand the reality of celebrating communion or the Lord's Supper in the early church. The historian Adolf von Harnack says this, as regards the Lord's Supper, the most important point is that its celebration became more and more the central point, not only for the worship of the church, but for its very life as a church. The form of this celebration, he goes on, the common meal, made it appear to be a fitting expression of the brotherly unity of the community. The prayers which it included presented themselves as vehicles for bringing before God in thanksgiving and intercession everything that affected the community. And the presentation of the elements for the holy ordinance was naturally extended to the offering of gifts for the poor brethren, who in this way received them from the hand of God himself. In the early church, it wasn't just, in some ways, the simple way that we celebrate communion today. It was actually a full meal that they enjoyed together. Then they ended with the bread and the wine. And then they went on to a time in God's word. It was a a full event meant to put Christ's death front and center. And in fact, in that event, those who were more wealthy would bring an abundance of food so that those who were poor would not be hungry. They would have plenty to eat. It was a very special occasion. And in fact, the church began to treasure it so much that it was something that some of those gatherings would do every week. Was that how it went in Corinth? No. Look at the text with me. What was happening? Well, they were gathering selfishly. What did that look like? Verse 18 says, For first of all, when you come together, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. This was a gathering of constant friction. The wording of the text makes it clear that it was just their common reality as they came together that they fought. They were a fighting church, a divided church. A church that loved to argue, a church that loved to hold strongly to their opinions. And you can see this throughout the book of Corinthians. And so when they came together, instead of all coming together around a table and celebrating, they actually divided into their little groups. But beyond just being divided, there were those who took advantage of the meal. They would actually show up early. They would bring extravagant food and lots to drink and they would huddle with their friends and gorge themselves. And so they were, they were just consuming to satisfy themselves to the point that the text says they were drunk at the end of it. And then on the other side, people would come into the gathering who were actually needy. But there would be no food left for them. And, and so those who had would, would eat first and fast and be done. And then those who were in need would show up and they just look around. Have you ever been at a gathering that ran out of food? And then you're late and you were counting on it for dinner? But imagine being in a context where there were people in your church family who were actually hungry who actually weren't sure what they were going to eat when they went home. And imagine them showing up to a church gathering designed to have food for everyone and finding out that there's people over here who are stuffed and drunk and they're, they're hungry, they're starving. And 
That's what was happening. What was the response to this gathering? It's as if Paul, in writing, can't wrap his head around it. Verse 20, he says, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not even to eat the Lord's Supper. Don't even call it that. It's like a tofu burger. Can you call it a burger? I mean, you just want to take a a Sharpie and cross. It's just not. It's like a smart car. It's a smart car car. My son has more power on his scooter by himself. Maybe it's a go-kart. It's like a teacup poodle. Is that a dog? Sorry. But it's as if Paul says, do you call this communion? He goes on to say, his, his disbelief continues in verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? It's unbelievable. Don't you have other places to eat? This kind of gathering despises what it means to be a church. When we gather in such a way that we care only for ourselves, we basically say, who cares about the church? What does that sacrifice we just sang about really mean? And then somehow it doesn't bother us that we shame people who actually have real need. Have you been to a church gathering that feels nothing like a church gathering? A business meeting where there's so much fighting among those who are supposed to love each other that you wish you weren't there? You say, why is that wild game dinner thing there? This one hits pretty close to home. A couple years ago, my father-in-law, who has a great burden, he, he runs a small company, has a burden for his, his employees and the, and the people that work for him that he gets a chance to tell them about Jesus. He runs a, a paving company, and so um, he has quite a crew. And yet he faithfully talks to them about the Lord and invite, has invited them to church. And so his church hosted a wild game dinner. He thought this would be a great occasion. And so some of these coworkers he had talked to for months, some for years, and he said, listen, our, our church is hosting this wild game dinner. You know, it's really special hunting gear, and there's, they were gonna have steaks and all these kinds of wild meat. And so his, his employees came. My father-in-law actually filled up a circular table. There was seven or eight of them who would, had never darkened the doors of a church before. And they came. And you can imagine the heart of my father-in-law just excited and can't wait to hear them to hear the word and, and to hear about Jesus and, and through the vehicle of this dinner. And the food gets served. And you can see the spread. It's amazing. But like vultures, the people of the church run to the front of the line. And believe it or not, by the time they got to my father-in-law's table, there was no food left. And now my father-in-law's coworkers that he's prayed for and, and invited and who have come 
are cursing. And that happens in the name of gathering together. And before we look at this passage and say, well, that's an extreme example, which it is, can I ask us all, isn't there a part of our hearts that becomes selfish even as we gather? And if we're not careful, we can stop looking like the body of the church and stop caring for the needs of people who have genuine needs, and we can just hope that this is going to scratch where I itch. And so to set the scene, the text takes us to the last gathering of Jesus. <coughs> and this is probably what you're most familiar with from this chapter, if you're familiar with it. But think about the difference, the contrast between the way that this church was gathering and the way that this last gathering of Jesus went. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you, church, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Here's a selfless gathering, and what does it look like? Notice, first of all, that this is a gathering steeped in pain. That the Lord Jesus, verse 23 says, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Don't miss that. This night could have been identified a lot of ways. And the way that God's word identifies it is by saying it was a night of betrayal. And if you think about that and unpack it, what is more pain-filled than being betrayed? Jesus didn't come to this gathering in pristine condition. He came to it with deep pain and deep hurt and he knew what was coming just hours from now. He was gonna pray in such a way that he literally sweat blood. He was not only gonna be betrayed, he was gonna be denied. And then for the 12 sitting around the table with him, all but one were gonna turn tail and run. And so how does Jesus lead a gathering? See, see, this is to tell us that we don't have to come together as we gather as a church with it all figured out or with it all fixed or with no pain and no suffering. That actually is a natural part of what it means to gather together. And so Jesus gathered in a pain-filled way. It was the opposite of comfortable and ideal. But notice that it was a thankful gathering. And when he had given thanks... He took the bread. It was focused on what God had provided, not on what we can get for ourselves. It was a sacrificial gathering. He broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body. 
which is broken for you. I appreciate it as Danny led us in giving. I don't know why, as people pray, sometimes little things stick out to you. And he prayed and he said something about as we give our offerings of gratitude and for some sacrifice. This is what it looks like to gather. To be willing to give of ourselves. Jesus says this is what's about to happen right after this. Jesus is leading the meeting. He's washing feet and he's doing it ready to give himself. And though the text doesn't state this implicitly, I want to bring this point. It was an inclusive gathering because I think this ties back to what's said before. Whose feet did Jesus wash? Did he wash Peter's feet after a little, after a little, little, little resistance? Did he wash Judas's feet? Did he wash the feet of the other 10 that would turn tail and run? Who did he engage in the meal? Who did he serve in that sense, the Last Supper to, communion to? To all. This is what a selfless gathering looks like. This is what we're supposed to reflect when we gather and when we observe communion. But notice that this gathering is connected to the one we just read about. How do we do this? We do this in remembrance of Christ and we do it to proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Our gatherings are supposed to take us back to Christ and his death. They're supposed to help us to remember. That's why I appreciated the song selection today and how it caused us to remember. But it's also supposed to help us to tell others to proclaim. That's what's supposed to be happening. Do you think that someone walked into the gathering of the church at Corinth and they thought, this reminds me of Jesus. This draws me to his service and his sacrifice. Do you think they thought, wow, this really proclaims Jesus. But that's what's supposed to happen. But the text goes on. And it reminds us that this is something that God takes very seriously. Verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. He doesn't get Christ's sacrifice. He doesn't get the church. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord. So that, don't miss this, we may not be condemned with the world. There are serious consequences attached. And I, and I, I want to be clear. These direct consequences are tied directly to this special event of the Lord's Supper. 
But I also want us to think more broadly about the seriousness with which we gather together to worship on a basis on, Sunday, on the Sunday after Sunday. Does God care about how he's worshipped? Does he care about the heart of his people as they gather? It's throughout our Bibles. Ask Nadab and Abihu if God cares about how they worship, how they lead in worship. Ask the Pharisees who Jesus looked at and said, you, you worship me, but your heart is far away. He looked at the people of Israel and said, you, you come and you offer and you offer and you offer and it doesn't even matter anymore. What are the consequences? God disciplines a selfish approach to his supper. And let's be clear, God's discipline of his people is not because they fail to meet some self-righteous expectation to make themselves right with God. That's not the idea of unworthy here. It's not that you tried as hard as you could and you just didn't meet a human standard. The idea here is you're approaching me in a way totally foreign to who Jesus is. You're living in utter selfless, selfishness when Jesus was utterly selfless. God's discipline brings pain and sickness and even premature death. This is meant to get our attention. And we could certainly spend a bunch of time here. But notice that God's discipline can be avoided by examining ourselves. Look at verse 28. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves we would not be judged. And last of all, notice in this section that God's discipline is not for the condemnation of Christians. It's not for their ultimate eternal condemnation. When we are judged, we are chastened, we are disciplined by the Lord so that, verse 32, we may not be condemned with the world. We sing together sometimes, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. And what's the next phrase? Anybody know? And I am loved by you. God is a good father. He, he loves you. He provides for you. He protects you. And part of his being a good father is he disciplines his children. Hebrews chapter 12 says, in order to correct us when we get out of line, when we get off track, when we get in places that are sinful and selfish and damaging to us and to others, God brings discipline into our lives. Hebrews 12 lays that out. In fact, Hebrews 12 says, if God doesn't correct you, if God doesn't convict you of sin and bring consequences into your life to keep you in the right direction, you're not his child. It's part of who God is. I have a two-year-old. A few weeks ago, he learned a new word. These are great times with words. They're great times with words that he's trying to say that don't sound like things he's trying to say, right? I've already been warned by some parents. They're like, you're gonna hear some interesting words. 
But somehow at the playground or with friends, he picked up the word mine. And we're working on that. Because I want to be a good father. And I don't want him to continue in his selfish ways. And so when some of your children come over to play with my child, we're working on mine. And when I turn off um, Paw Patrol and turn on something that I want to watch and he points at the TV and says, mine. It's what he wants. And sometimes like little children, we come into our gatherings and we even gather around communion and our heart is mine. And that brings us to the final section of these verses together. And to our one another. Therefore, my brethren, verse 33, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. Two ways in which we can selflessly care for one another. Wait for one another. When we gather together, the goal is to include and involve and, and participate with everyone. So I trembled as I wrote this first bullet point because I am an early starter and my heart is warmed when we start a minute early. And some of you can relate to me and some of you are like, you are crazy. But the idea here, wait for one another, is not just about when you start, it's about why you start. If there's an accident on 114th coming in and there's, people are trickling in late or there's just a, there's just a healthy gathering out in the, in the lobby area, we should wait for each other because this is such a, a special gathering together. We want everyone to be included and involved. In the early church, they were rushing ahead and making sure they were taken care of and they didn't care what happened to anybody else. Wait for one another. Learn to be patient so that everyone can be included be flexible. Flexible. For the good of everyone. Can I just take you through some quick verses? See if you can catch the trend here. These are the verses on waiting for one another. What does it look like? John 5. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting, there's our word, for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred the water. Then whoever stepped uh, in, in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Why were these people waiting? So they could be healed, made well. Hebrews 10, 12 and 13, but this man Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Jesus is waiting. He's waiting for a day when everyone who has held up their fist against him, every nation and leader and tribe will be placed under his authority. Every knee will bow. Hebrews 11, just a chapter over, by faith Abraham, dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. What was Abraham waiting for? Heaven. And one more, James 5, 7, 8. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. 
See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. When the Bible says wait for one another, you know what it's saying? Take your time. I'm telling you, this is hard things to come out of my mouth. Take your time so that everyone can be a part. It's a good, good thing. And then this one's interesting. If you're hungry, eat at home. Don't show up hungry. Learn to be prepared so that everyone can be served. Can I ask you this? Do you come to this gathering prepared? Have you actually thought and said, how can I make sure that my needs are taken care of so that I can care for everyone who's here? Can I take that down another level? Do do you come to the gathering of God's people with your soul filled? Or do you come starving? And here's where it applies, right? What if you came in this morning and there were 15 kids in nursery and and for the good of others, you could say, you know what? I, I can step out of this preaching time because my soul is not starving so that I can serve others. I've talked to Christians who said, you know, you know Matt, I, I can't help at church because I need the preaching of the word and I need the equipped classes. I need, I need everything because my soul is just desperate for it. Can I say what this text says? Maybe you need to eat at home a little more. So when you come together to gather, you can serve others. Because that's what our gathering is about. It's not about us getting. Jesus didn't sit at the Last Supper and say, hey, fellas, the next two days are going to be really rough for me. I need you to pamper and care for me. Can someone wash my feet, please? Can someone get me dinner? I need, I need as much fuel and energy and support as I can get for the next couple days. He, he came to the Last Supper and said, let me serve you. How do we think this through? When we come together, do we participate in or encourage conflict and argument in the church? Do we just like to argue? Here was a church that over and over again, God said, quit it. Learn to live and be of the same mind and the same heart. Are we connecting only with those around us with whom we feel comfortable and safe? We're gonna have a church picnic today. Some of you have tables mapped out already and who you're hoping will be there. Can I tell you that, that at, its, at its littlest point, is, it's, it's part of what was happening in Corinth to an extreme? Or, or do you come to the church picnic today and say, who, who can I serve? Not how can I be in the front of the line, not how can I be safe and comfortable with my people. How can I include one another? Are we concerned as we gather primarily with our own comfort and satisfaction? And I hope those songs today, I hope they're the ones I like to sing because I could really use those. 
Man, I hope the people that I want to see are there. I hope my seat isn't taken. Have you noticed it's starting to fill up around here? It's awesome. But can I tell you that as, and many of you are visiting with us today, and we're so thankful for that. Do you know that there are like safe zones in church for people who visit? Can I tell you where they are not? <laughs> like mostly to the back, <laughs> off to the side. Those are like green zones. They're, they're safe. And then as you move up into the kind of this middle section, you start to get into yellow zones. They're places where I would not prefer to sit. But if there aren't green zone seats, I will sit in yellow zone seats. And then have you ever been to a church that you came into the gathering and all the green zone seats and all the yellow zone seats were taken? And you thought, how badly do I want to be here today? (laughs) Can I tell you what should be happening in a church? Our antenna should be up. We shouldn't be worried about our own comfort or our own seats or our own place. We should actually be thinking, how do I serve others in a way that they can be included comfortably? Because it's not about my own comfort. Are we flexible with our plans to make sure everyone is included? And are we preparing to meet our own needs before gathering so that we can truly care for others when we come together? And really, the heart of this text is this. Do our gatherings and our celebration of the Lord's Supper, do they remind us and others about Jesus? Do they draw our heart and attention to him? Or in some small ways or some big ways, have they become attempts to please ourselves? Lord, we thank you for your word. It cuts to our selfish hearts. And Lord, we confess that even as we gather, our own desires to be pleased and to be comfortable and to be satisfied can become very important. And yet when we look at our Savior and we look at His gathering It was so different. By your grace, would you help us to wait for one another? Would you help us to eat at home, to prepare ourselves, so that when we come together, we can fully focus on you and we can selflessly serve each other? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.